0: The Modern Package Tour began about 150 years ago when the English booked passage for some fresh mountain air in the Alps.
1: We can enjoy beautiful mountain trains or a little bit of luxury if we can afford it. And it's all there because 150 years ago, Thomas Cook decided to take some people to Switzerland.
0: Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we look at what an exotic holiday getaway meant back in the days of Queen Victoria. If you ever get to go on a safari in Africa... Wildlife artist Fred Krakowiak suggests that you put your camera away and listen. You want to shut your eyes and use
2: your other senses to listen to the language the animal kingdom uses to speak, the messages they communicate about the magnificence and frailty of life. And we look at the emotional rewards you can expect when you allow time to be a little spontaneous. Only the
3: traveler goes to sleep with absolutely no idea what tomorrow will bring. Come along
0: just for the fun of it. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Some of the most important moments in your travels are unlikely to be captured by just snapping a selfie. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, Thomas Swick shares seven personal rewards that we can all expect from our travels. And wildlife artist Fred Krakowiak explains how the animals and landscapes of Africa speak to him when he's on an artist's safari. While researching material for a book on his new homeland of Switzerland, Travel writer Dickon Bewes stumbled upon a curious old travel diary from the Victorian era. In it, he read the observations of a Miss Jemima, who took one of the new package tours to the Alps. What she described inspired Dickon to see just how much had changed since the 19th century. He writes about what they both encountered in his book Slow Train to Switzerland. Dickon, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves.
1: Hi, Rick. Thanks for inviting me.
0: So who is Miss Jemima, and uh, how did you meet her?
1: She's actually just a normal 31-year-old lady from North Yorkshire in England. She wrote this diary, but never became famous. She wasn't Bridget Jones. She wasn't Anne Frank. It's a diary that she wrote for herself. And I came across her when I was researching my first book, Swiss Watching, and wanted to look at Swiss history in English, and there weren't many books in English. And I found her diary on the Internet, secondhand, And read it and loved it. It's really full of life and full of humor, but full of Victorian ladies' morals as well. And uh, I decided there and then to follow in her footsteps.
0: And this was really the, the first international tour that Thomas Cook, who sort of invented tourism, Lead. And it was 1863, a bunch of rich uh, English people going to the Swiss Alps. Is that right?
1: It is right, apart from the fact they weren't rich, uh, which was the whole point. Up until Thomas Cook came along, you had to be rich. You had to have three months or so to get to Switzerland and stay there. Transport was very limited. Mm. It was very slow. You needed time. What Thomas Cook created was the first holiday abroad for the middle classes, so doctors, lawyers, ah, bankers. Okay. And they could afford his group tickets, made it much cheaper, And using the trains, that new invention at the time, made it much faster. And so this is was the birth of Thomas Cook as a global brand. With Switzerland, he had immense success. He had been almost bankrupt a few years before, but Switzerland saved his company. (laughs) And within two years, he was offering tours of Italy and Germany. Within 10 years, he was selling round-the-world tickets. So modern tourism, as we know it, was born in Switzerland with Thomas Cook. I was really interested in looking at this point in Swiss history and the point in travel history when the first mass tourism started, but also how Switzerland had changed or not since that time. So I used Miss Jemima's diary and I used the guidebook that they used back in 1860s. I didn't take my iPhone, I didn't take any modern guidebooks, and I followed in her footsteps exactly the same day to day, following the same rhythm, using her diary as a guide to see what a change. I
0: worked so hard to make my Switzerland guidebook up to date and you chose to use a guidebook that was written in 1860. Was there any value at all to that and how would that be like surprisingly helpful?
1: There was a lot of value to it because Switzerland in those days was one of the poorest countries in Europe and the guidebook gave very good advice like never leave your hotel without a few small coins in your pocket to get rid of all the beggars <laughs> that are in every street which is something we would never come across in a modern guidebook because Switzerland is now one of the richest countries in the world. And tourism was one of the things that helped change it from poor to rich. And so it was fascinating from a social history point of view to see Switzerland through the eyes of the Victorians rather Mm -hmm. than through our eyes.
0: So what was your general route? And as you did that route, what did you come across that really could take you back 150 years?
1: We went from London to Paris to Geneva by train, which took them two whole days. And then down into Chamonix Mont Blanc and across into Switzerland, the Rhone Valley, over to the Bernese Oberland, into Larken, and then Lucerne, Mount rigi and back. So it was quite a rural route. There were almost no trains. Once you got to Geneva by train, everything was by carriage or on foot. And so it was not an easy journey for them. They endured 18-hour days, getting up at 4 o'clock every morning. They walked a lot of the way, so 25-mile hikes over the mountains. And you have to remember, Miss Jemima, this has gone with the wind era. She was wearing a big dress with crinolines Hmm. and she still hiked through the mountains. It's not really the image we have of Victorian ladies. We see them as rather demure and unadventurous. But these, these women were quite intrepid. They hiked across quite big glaciers. The glaciers were much bigger in those days and they hiked across them with no safety equipment, no ropes, no helmets, no guides, anything. They just went for a walk across the glacier. I think they probably presumed if they fell into a crevasse their dress would stop their fall because their dress was much bigger than the crevasse.
0: <laughs> Dickon Buse is our guide right now to Switzerland that the 19th century English packaged tourist encountered. His book is called Slow Train to Switzerland. Dickon's also written a, a bestseller about the Swiss called Swiss watching. He lives in Bern, and uh, he retraced the steps of a woman whose journal he found uh, of an 1863 tour and when I go to a place like Interlaken or even Klannescheideck, a a mountain station high up in the Alps, I find these old, these grand hotels. When you listed your itinerary, that was the grand tour, wasn't it? And and this was established, and much of that tour survives today. The places you ticked off are still the places that the tourists that go to Switzerland want to check out. I mean, an English first Thomas Cook tour or a, a Japanese busload of 50 people coming in for the best of Switzerland a lot of the stuff is the same.
1: It is, and it's all down to the landscape because people still want to see the Eiger, they still want to see the Matterhorn, they still want to see the beautiful waterfalls and meadows and Alps. That's the reason why Thomas Cook was successful in the first place, to get the British off their newly industrial smoggy island and to go to the clean air and beautiful landscape, and that's pretty much why people carry on coming. And when you go to places like Interlaken or Grindelwald, A lot of the infrastructure that we see there today, whether it's the grand hotels or the train lines or the paddle steamers, that was all built after 1863 for the British tourists. British tourism pretty much created Switzerland as we know it. And for that, I'm forever grateful because we can enjoy beautiful mountain trains or a little bit of luxury if we can afford it. And it's all there because 150 years ago, Thomas Cook decided to take some people to Switzerland.
0: As a tour guide who's been taking people around Switzerland for 30 years, people are just always enamored with chocolate, Swiss knives, Swiss army knives, cuckoo clocks, and Swiss watches. Mm -hmm. To what degree did Jemima find any of that, and where did all those clichés come from?
1: Well, chocolate, she certainly wouldn't have found in the form that we know it. Milk chocolate was invented in Switzerland, but not till 1875 so she wouldn't have found a nice bar of Nestle (laughs) chocolate for sure. Swiss army knives weren't invented till the 1890s, so she wouldn't have found those either. Heidi wasn't written till 1880, so she wouldn't even have heard of that. Pretty much the only thing she could have bought and her brother who traveled with her did buy was a watch. Watches then were the souvenir to take back. Even then, Swiss Hmm. watches had a reputation for immense beauty and accuracy. That dates back to John Calvin, Jean Calvin, who was a reform preacher in Geneva. And in 1541, he banned the wearing and production of jewellery in Geneva. And so all the jewellery makers had to switch to a new trade because they had lost their market completely. And they switched to making watch cases and watches. And that's where the Swiss watch industry started and has grown ever since to become a multi-billion dollar industry. Mm
0: It's Travel with Rick Steves, and Dickon Buse is our guide to the scenic escapes to Switzerland that British tourists enjoyed back in the 19th century. His latest book is Slow Train to Switzerland. He's also the author of the bestseller Swiss Watching, and his website is dickonbuse.com. That's spelled D I C C O N B E W E S. Dickon now makes his home in Bern. Dickon, when I'm in Switzerland, I'm always impressed by the number of uh, nostalgic steam trains and cog rail trains and so on. There's an appetite for keeping the elegance of the old world kind of still accessible to travelers to this day. Talk a little bit about nostalgia alpine wonders.
1: That, for me, is one of the wonders of living in Switzerland and traveling around, that a lot of these early train lines which were built in the 50 years after Thomas Cook arrived, are still there and some of them very often have steam trains on them so for instance you can travel up the oldest mountain railway in europe it was the second in the world it goes up mount Riggy, and uh, every so often they will have steam trains on special days but even if you go on a normal day you get a nostalgic old carriage and it's a beautiful train ride and you have to remember that when it opened in 1871 the only alternative was to walk up which takes about five hours Hmm. or to be carried up like Queen Victoria was in a sedan chair.
0: Imagine that, 1871, they would do this just for tourism, really. I mean, in the generation after that, they dug tunnels through the Eiger to take the train all the way up to the the Jungfraujoch, which uh, is the top of Europe.
1: It is, and it was all for tourism. There is no reason for these tunnels and train lines to be built because no one lives in these places. They were built as tourist attractions to keep the tourists coming and they were financed by tourism because they had this captive market. And so when you go up to Jungfraujoch today, and it's up at maybe 10,000 feet, the tunnel that was built and opened in 1912 was built as a tourist attraction for British tourists who needed something to do and a way to spend their money but you can still do it today, in a modern train. But the engineering is still exactly the same as it was over 100 years ago. And that, for me, is amazing, that it has survived and is still as much loved now as it was then.
0: So when you go to the top of the Jungfrau yoke today, it's mind-blowing investment in technology, and it's 100 years old. And it was done for this very beginning of modern tourism. And when you walk the main street in Interlaken, you see these wonderful grand hotels. What's the big classic old grand tour hotel in Interlaken?
1: The Victoria Jungfrau.
0: Yeah, you step in there and it it takes you back 100 years easy.
1: It's like going onto the set of Downton Abbey. It really is.
0: That's great. It's like one tour but two trips, 150 years and a world of change apart. What would you envy after doing this about what Miss Jemima would have experienced that you can't do today? And what might she envy about your trip that she couldn't have done back in the 19th century?
1: For me, one of the biggest disappointments was that the glaciers have pretty much disappeared. She went to Grindelwald, where in those days two glaciers came right down into the village. She only had to walk across the field to see the ice. I had to hike a couple of hours up just to see the end of the glacier, which was another couple of hours away. So those mighty rivers of ice, or frozen hurricanes as Byron called them, have disappeared almost completely, which is such a shame. For her, she probably would envy the speed with which I got round. It definitely Mm -hmm. was a slow tour for her, and it was uncomfortable. They had no bathrooms in the hotels. They didn't wash or bathe for three weeks. They wore the same clothes every day. I luckily could bathe every day and change my clothes, so she'd probably envy the hygiene.
0: I think we have an advantage. We can enjoy essentially the same alpine wonder, and we have amazing efficiency, uh, convenience and comfort.
1: Exactly. I think the landscape is just as beautiful as she saw it, but we have the modern comforts that came about as a result of that first tour.
0: Dickon Buse, author of Slow Train to Switzerland, how might Miss Jemima have said goodbye and thanks?
1: She would probably have said Gute Reise und Merci vielmal Mal in German. And merci. Merci We have
0: links to Dickens' website and books in the radio section of ricksteves.com. In just a bit, Thomas Swick identifies the seven emotional benefits you can expect from the moment you start to plan a vacation getaway. Up next, we're seeing the wilds of Africa with all our senses on an artist's safari. It's Travel with Rick Steves. As a child, he drew animals at the zoo. Today he portrays those same animals in their natural habitat in Africa on what he calls an artist's safari. Fred Krakowiak first joined us on Travel with Rick Steves five years ago. He's back from his home base in Phoenix to tell us more about what the African bush country has been saying to him. His latest book of animal portraits and painting techniques is called The Artist's Safari, Capturing Africa with Pen, Lens, and Paintbrush. Fred, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Rick. You know, Fred, you open your book with this amazing story of the birth of a giraffe. Describe that experience to us. Well, the birth of the giraffe
2: came after a unique event. We had been traveling, and early in the morning, the forest went very quiet, and we were not sure exactly what had happened. And so we started tracking to where we heard a bunch of lions, and they were chasing down a giraffe. A male giraffe and if you can imagine three lionesses taking down a male giraffe it was something to see. As they take this giraffe down the lionesses separated and two large males came from the back. One was black tuft behind its ears and the other one was a little bit larger had a golden mane with a red tint. Well these two males came upon the scene and what had happened then was they stood up and fought over the first bite of meat, the prime choice of the giraffe. The larger the two males stayed where he was and the smaller male moved to the rear. What happened next was very unique as all of this commotion caused a series of events and we had a circle of life, so to speak, as the lionesses stood guard around because they were going to eat next. The next circle, was the hyenas and the black-backed jackals. And then in the trees, the vultures had also started to perch and come. And over the next four days, we watched everyone take their turns at this giraffe until after the fourth day, there were only four ribs showing. Of course, it was a part of life, part of nature. And as we were leaving that site on the fourth day, we saw another giraffe. And it was a mother giving birth to a giraffe. And you could see this giraffe drop six feet and then no less than minutes went by and it stood up on its wobbly legs. And it was just a pleasure to see the circle of life. Something has to
0: pass away in nature and then something is born later. You, you talked about how the lionesses would take down a giraffe. It's almost like it's not tragic, it's just part of, the circle isn't it absolutely it's just part of the circle you're a you're a painter and i would imagine it's a challenge for you to get a front row seat on all this action and it must be interesting for you to look at other tourists that come and go on safaris who really miss the boat as far as observing as a painter and as a enthusiast for the the wonder of natural life in africa how do we observe better and how do we understand what you're seeing as as you clearly do I encourage everyone that I take to Africa
2: or everyone I talk to about Africa, I encourage them to put the camera down and to use more of their senses, to use their senses of smell. Smell the what's about you. As an example, the wild dogs, the stench of the wild dogs is 10 times worse than that of a skunk. And yet people want to just pick up their camera and take pictures instead of using their sense of smell or their sense of hearing. If you're tracking down lions and you lose track of lions, use your sense of hearing. I tell a story in the book about tracking lions. I thought the lions, all their tracks went to the west, and I had thought that we would be going west, and Humphrey, of course, goes in the opposite direction. Humphrey being your your guide, your African guide. Yes, my African guide. After we had tracked them and fortunately was able to find them, I asked Humphrey, why did you go to the opposite direction of what all of my knowledge thought we should go? And he said, Fred, you didn't use your sense of hearing. And I said, I did. I heard the elephants and I heard the elands. I didn't hear anything. He goes, no, you did not listen good enough because you needed to listen to the baboons, the juvenile baboons, the first call the juvenile baboon learns is the lion alarm, and they were screaming a lion alarm in the opposite direction, and so I knew they had backtracked. So again, you want to use all of your senses, your sense of smell, your sense of sight, put the camera down, and be a
0: part of Africa. You uh, begin your book with a quote from Paul Gauguin. It says, uh, I shut my eyes to see. What does that quote mean to you?
2: Well, it means, quite frankly, just as it says, you want to shut your eyes and use your other senses to listen to the language the animal kingdom uses to speak, the messages they communicate about the magnificence and frailty of life.
0: In Africa, nature is actually distilled to its essence. Is that part of the magic that keeps you going back to Africa every year? You're an artist, you could do your work in other parts of the planet. Uh, what is it about Africa?
2: Africa, specifically. It's the close encounters with the amazing creatures of Africa that allow me to look into their eyes and deep into their souls and then capture their spirits with my pen, my photographs, my paintbrush. And this reveals the the inner circle, the magic of Africa. And the people of
0: Africa, too, they are treasured symbols of of their tribe. Now, when you say look into the eyes and look into the souls of the animals. Is that literal? Are you looking into their eyes and and seeing something?
2: Yes. I'm interpreting the animals through their posture, through their body language and their expressions, indicated by the shape of their eyes or the position of their ears. I'm reading their body language. And even at night, you should be able to recognize predators by the way they sway their heads, their eye positions, the distance between their eyes. How far off the ground are their eyes? Is the sway of their head perpendicular? Is it like a protractor? Is it up and down? Africa is alive 24-7, so whether it be during the day, interpreting their body language and gazing into their eyes to see what they're feeling, facial expressions seldom lie.
0: Wildlife artist Fred Krakowiak is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Samples of his work are online at maverickbrushstrokes.com. And his latest book is called The Artist's Safari, Capturing Africa with Pen, Lens, and Paintbrush. You can also listen to Fred's 2008 interview in the Travel with Rick Steves archives. Look on our website for Program 139. Fred, listening to you talk, I would imagine that your guide, Humphrey, who apparently you, is a favorite of yours that you, you use year after year, would consider you a, a good student well he tests
2: me and he tests me quite often and i like to be tested i like to learn i like i want to enhance and increase my knowledge of africa for several reasons and one of them is for the conservation of africa the wildlife unfortunately on this last trip we found a a rhino that had been poached not days before it was very very sad so i try to learn everything i can about africa as far as tracking how to conserve wildlife, etc.
0: Talk a little bit about tracking, Fred. I read in your book you've got points of what makes uh, an effective animal tracker, and it's much more than just looking at the tracks. You even anal- analyze the urine that you would find in the dust. Yes, you are tracking an animal
2: through the space that it occupies as its home. You're just not following hoof or paw prints. You're looking for a scrape on a tree, a broken branch, flowers that are out of sequence. Tracking into the sun often will have prints light up like a runway. That's always to your advantage to track
0: into the sun. You even said spider webs matter. How would a spider web tell you something about an animal you're tracking?
2: Spider webs do matter. If you're looking and that spider web is broken in any way, then you know that an animal went through that direction, similar to spider webs that are between two flowers, as an example, two stems. If that spider web's been broken, then you know, even if the stem's not broken, if the spider web is busted, then you know that an animal's
0: walked through there, and that gives you an advantage. I noticed in one of the photographs in your book, Fred, your guide had a pistol in his holster, and there was duct tape over the trigger. What are the safety concerns, and why the duct tape?
2: Humphrey uses duct tape to
0: make sure that
2: there's no misfire on that gun. If he needs to pull it, he can easily pull the duct tape off. But is always, primary concern is safety. He's had a 100% safety record since he began guiding 14 years ago. And he always carries a rifle with him when we go tracking on foot, which is what we do primarily. And so... You always must trust your guide and listen to him, and I always emphasize that to anyone who goes with us. You trust your life to your guide. Your guide has to make good decisions. If you're being charged by an elephant or, as we were this past safari, charged by a female lioness, you have to read its body language and you have to trust the guide that you're
0: with to know exactly what you need to do and to give you the proper instructions. Because when you trust your guide, I would imagine you can get out of your what might be your comfort zone and get up really close and personal with the animals, which is your goal, I would imagine. As my wife says, I am an adrenaline junkie, but I do
2: like getting close to the animals and not put myself in harm's way, but again, to have a, an exciting moment in Africa, and Humphrey allows me to do that.
0: You know, that your ability to get close with Humphrey's help Really comes across in your art. I got to say, in your book, the Artist Safari, the paintings that you make, there's something almost super realistic about the paintings that that gets you there, and and you couldn't possibly have made that painting without being right there and and hearing the landing of that baby giraffe when it's born, or or feeling the thunder in the ground as the elephant's foot hits the ground near you. Talk about being up really close to an elephant. When elephants are
2: charging, and they are perhaps 30 feet away. An elephant sprinting runs at about 30 miles an hour, so you have three seconds, four seconds tops, to make a decision on whether or not that's a mock charge or if it's not a mock charge. As an elephant is approaching, if his ears are coming out and they are not pinned back, that's a good sign. That means it's going to be a mock charge if his head is tilted up and looking directly at you instead of being down, tilted at a 45-degree angle down, that's also a good sign. You want his eyes looking up at you, not down. And you want his trunk, if it's hanging to the ground, you don't want it coiled underneath his chest because, again, that's more aggressive. What What's the purpose of a mock charge? I would imagine that's just posturing. It's posturing for the elephant to tell you that he's allowing you to be a visitor to his country.
0: Well, that would be reassuring. So you can continue your your work as a photographer or a painter knowing he's not going to be aggressive with you. Absolutely.
2: And so as they approach, it's very important to immediately read their body language. And then as they do approach, again, you want to use all of your senses. I quite often have put a camera down so that I can experience the charge as he's kicking the dust up and looking at that foot and looking at those nails as they're hitting the ground and the dust is being thundered up into the air and pellets are bouncing off of my forehead. Man, man. Just being able to smell the
0: musk. Listening to you talk about this, I just, I want to go there, but I I want Humphrey with me. I would, at this point, never go back to Africa on a
2: walking safari without Humphrey. I have been (laughs) with other guides, but Humphrey's one of the best.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Fred Krakowiak, and Fred's new book is The Artist's Safari. In your uh, writing, I like your book because it's a combination of photographs that give you a sense of place, this vivid writing that gives you behind the scene and looks exactly what's going on that you've gleaned from your experience and the help of your guide, and your vibrant paintings of of these scenes. You clearly have a respect for nature and a concern about, you know, the well-being of these species, and you, you write that extinction is forever. What's the big news with with endangered species. From your book, I I learned that there used to be about half a million lions just one generation ago, and now it's down to 20,000. Cheetahs have dropped from 100,000 a century ago to just 10,000 today. Are we in danger of of losing some of these majestic beasts? We are. Wild dogs is down
2: to 3,000, or some estimates have it as high as 3,500, although that's probably a bit embellished. The problem we have is not only do we have human encroachment but we also have things going on in Africa where money talks. And unfortunately, right now in Zimbabwe, there's a company that wants to employ their mineral rights and dig along the Rukamachi River, which is just outside a World Heritage Site of Mana Pools. So if they did that, that would just create havoc with the whole ecosystem of Mana Pools. Mm
0: short-term profit for long-term disaster. You you call elephants ivory carriers. Are they still poached for their ivory? Uh,
2: yes, unfortunately they are. They are still poached uh, very heavily in the Congo for ivory. Countries like South Africa have tried to eliminate it. And unfortunately, because of that, the genes that should be passed on so that these ivory carriers can continue to have these massive tusks uh, many of the elephants now that you see are tuskless and they've, through genetics, if they have big tusks, then, you know, that doesn't uh, bode well for their
0: livelihood and the tusks are smaller. So elephants are evolving to have smaller tusks because they're less prized by poachers. Yes, absolutely. Isn't that something? Also, Fred, you talk about how we often fear predators, you know, the fast cats with big teeth, but how they're often misunderstood and not appreciated.
2: Well, they are very misunderstood. And the lions, as an example, they, as I mentioned earlier, tracking a lion, you're in their house. This wildlife, whether it be lions or cheetahs or leopards, you know, we are invading where they have been for centuries. And so we have to be more conscientious of that fact. And they are not there to really harm anyone. I was surrounded by 18 lions this past safari and the reason for that was simply that there was four cubs in a little channel that we had come upon and didn't see and so we actually had to just wait until everybody calmed down and then we were able to just back out and then walk away so they weren't there to harm us they were certainly there to put us on alert that they were not happy with us being there so it's just a matter of being conscientious with mm-hmm. your surroundings and being
0: aware of your environment when you're there. Fred Krakowiak, the book Artist Safari, it's a great journal. It's an intimate journal of your your love of, of Africa and the and the natural majesty of, of Africa. You write, we cannot love what we do not understand. How does that impact your work? Why, why do you write that?
2: Well, that's one reason I went to Africa, 20 years ago when I was painting from zoo animals and doing the art from the wildlife at zoos, someone had told me, Fred, you're missing their soul, you're missing their heart. And once I went to Africa, my art improved 200% because that's when you're out there walking amongst Africa and amongst the wildlife and looking at them in their eyes and looking at their souls. That's when you really appreciate the wildlife that's there.
0: Fred Krakowiak, thank you so much for the inspiration and um, congratulations on your beautiful book, The Artist's Safari.
2: Oh, thank you, Rick. I appreciate it. Hope we can talk again. Bye.
1: See later. <laughs>
0: You'll find links to Fred Krakowiak's books, plus samples of his wildlife portraits and his speaking schedule on his website. That's maverickbrushstrokes.com. Thomas Swick knows you need a vacation, and he tells us about the emotional benefits that you can expect from a little change of scenery. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. He's been to more than 60 countries, edited the travel section of a Florida newspaper wrote a memoir about living in Poland, and his articles often appear in major newspapers and magazines. In sharing stories with other travelers, Thomas Swick has recognized common but perhaps hidden delights that we can all experience when we travel. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to identify the joys of travel. Thomas, thanks for joining us. Good to be here, Rick. Thomas, you've been writing for, for decades and you've decided to write a book that doesn't talk about particular places but sort of a philosophy of travel. Why did you decide to write a book like this? Well, you know, when you tell people you're a travel writer, the response, as you know, is almost
3: always enthusiastic. People say, wow, what a great job. I would love to do that. And I started wondering, what what is it that really appeals to people about travel? And, you know, obviously it's Partly the sights, sights get a lot of attention, but I I thought there was something deeper, and I the more I thought about it, I I found out that there are seven separate pleasures. I think starting with the anticipation before the trip, moving up to heightened appreciation of home, and I think some of them are people who don't really appreciate that much. We don't sometimes savor these these pleasures as much as we do the sights, but they're there, and I hope this book will. Uh, Show people that you know there's a lot more to travel than just going from one place to another
0: there's a a big sort of bucket list trend these days where people just have a list of famous things they want to see before they die. Has that sort of encouraged you to nudge people to be a little more purposeful in their travels
3: yeah i, I see this book kind of as a compliment to you know a thousand places to see before you die it's for me, it's often not the sights but the things I see on my way to the sites. That really stand
0: out, Thomas, what do you think when somebody asks you how many countries have you visited
3: If they insist, uh, I'll tell them, but I, I tell them the quantity's not not important. it's the quality of the trip. You know, I started travelling in the seventies, which was the age of the backpacker, and I basically picked a place and stayed for a while. I, I worked mm-hmm. one summer in a in a food hall in London and my last summer in college. Then I went to uh, France after college, spent a year to learn French and then worked on a farm for the summer. And a few years after that, I went to Poland and lived there for two and a half years teaching English. So all my experiences were living in a place, getting to know the language, getting to know the people, the culture, Mm -hmm. and that really informed the
0: way I travel today. Also, there's a trend these days for people spending a good part of their trip just photographing everything and getting selfies. With selfie smartphones, sticks. <laughs> yeah.
3: You know, I, I teach travel writing, and one thing I tell travel writing students is put the camera down for a large part of your time there, and sometimes, instead of taking a picture of something, draw it. Mm. And it doesn't matter if you have any talent at that at all, but it just, when you draw something, it makes you really look at it you really examine it and see it detail for detail. Mm-hmm. And and that is a great way of, of really seeing.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Thomas Swick. His book is The Joys of Travel, and it's highlighting the seven joys that Thomas believes makes the trip a little more rewarding and, and, and a little more vibrant. Let's go through these now, Thomas. We'll go uh, just one by one. Let's talk about anticipation. That's your first joy. What do you mean by that?
3: Well, that excitement and, and also anxiety that you feel before a trip. You know, there's a word in this for German, Reisefieber, from the mm. German words for journey and, and fever. We all know this experience, you know, we all know this feeling. And I think it's also, in addition to feeling the anticipation, it kind of spurs us into action. You know, obviously, as a travel writer, I do a lot of preparation before every trip. But I think there's things that I do as a travel writer that every every traveler can do. And that includes reading lots of books about the place, travel books, novels, uh, biographies of famous people who come from there. But also, you know, things like watching movies. If you're going to Turkey, watch some Turkish films before you go, Mm -hmm. Uh, listening to music from the place. This kind of pre-immersion, you know, before you even get there for a few weeks before you go, just kind of live that place as much as you can. But another thing I do, Rick, is I, I tell everybody I meet where I'm going next for two reasons. One, I, I want to hear what they think of the place. It's very interesting to hear people's reactions mm-hmm. to where you're going. And also, you'd be amazed uh, how often somebody says, oh, I have a cousin there. You know, Here's, you look him up when you get there. And then you get
0: contacts. You know, you point yeah. out this wonderful quote by Robert Louis Stevenson. For my part, I travel not to go anywhere, but to go. I travel for travel's sake. The great affair is to move. Let's move on to movement.
3: This is one that people tend to overlook. Everybody kind of complains these days about the getting there. You know, so many of us fly to where we're going and you know the experience of of going through security is obviously not very pleasant. But for anyone who's ever doubted the joy of movement, I, I ask them to notice their reaction the next time they're sitting on their plane at the gate and it's 15 minutes late and they've got a connection And all of a sudden, after 15 minutes, the plane slowly, almost imperceptibly, starts to nudge backwards. You know, that's just such a great feeling that, ah, finally, we're going. Trains, I'm I'm a great fan of trains. And trains give you that wonderful feeling of movement. And they also do this miraculous thing you know, they're an escape, like all means of transportation, but they take you through what you're escaping. I mean, you go right through the heart of little towns and and you get to see the, the world right there outside the
0: window, which you don't mm-hmm. get, obviously, on a plane and you don't get on a, uh, on a ship. There is something romantic about being on a train. I mean, I suppose that's why this gorgeous shot of a train going through the Rockies is on the cover of your book. And their next point is break from routine. That's
3: one of the great joys of travel. We get stuck in a rut, you know, doing the same thing every day, going to work, whatever. And when we travel, we're free. You know, it's nothing's predictable. Only the traveler goes to sleep with absolutely no idea what tomorrow will bring. You know, you can have a really bad day on on a trip and you go to bed that night and you think, well, tomorrow's going to be a completely different day. Nothing's connected the way it is in, in regular life. So yeah, the break from routine, and then the longer stay—I mean, well, as I did when I was younger, when I would stay in a place for a month or a year—you you you'd kind of take on a, a new routine, but it's so different from what you were used to mm-hmm. back home
0: that it, that it mm. has this wonderful quality of freshness. On the other hand, you—you you said it's uh, independent traveler has a. Uh a better opportunity to have a break from routine than a, a tourist. You mentioned tours just replace one routine with another.
3: Yeah, the few tours I've been on have done that and it kind of cuts down on the, um, the spontaneity and, right. and the chance encounters, which you know, are just
0: such a wonderful part of travel. In fact, the more wealthy and comfortable and risk-averse we get, the more we sort of inoculate ourselves from the serendipity that can really give us those magic moments.
3: Yeah. When I was a travel editor, I had a freelancer write a story for me once about running out of money in Portugal. Mm -hmm. And it was at that Mm -hmm. moment, the trip really became interesting because she really had to depend on people. She had to kind of get out of her tourist shell and it really, the trip really took off then. Your next point is novelty. Yes. And this is so big a a part of travel. And as I said earlier, it's not just the sights, you know, it's the tastes. We eat new foods when we travel. We discover things that we didn't, didn't know existed in the, in the culinary world. As Americans, we have the advantage of having so much ethnic food here that now when we go to uh, Thailand, we've already had
0: pad thai, but, you know, it's still different when you eat it in the country of its origin. Oh, there's no question. You mentioned how you can have had gazpacho in the United States, but when you go to Spain, you've really had gazpacho.
3: Right. But it doesn't give us that transport of power, you know, that it would have if we had first had it in Spain. You know, if you have your first snails in Burgundy, every snail afterwards is going to remind you of Burgundy.
0: Or every every snail afterwards is going to remind you you're not in Burgundy. I, I mean, I, I, I just <laughs> yeah. had some snails the other day in Washington, D.C., and it was... Uh, it was a nice restaurant, but it was a major disappointment. It it's yeah. almost corrupts you when you. I have a tough time in Italian restaurants in the United States, for example, because I. It just reminds me that they can they can try they can do a good job, but they cannot create, the ambiance and and everything that you'd get, when you're actually there. But that's the novelty of travel. This is travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Thomas Swick. His book is called The Joys of Travel, and it talks about the fundamental sort of essence of travel regardless of where you're going and having an an attitude that helps us tune into these seven points to make sure we have a better experience. And your next point, Thomas, is discovery.
3: Yes, and this is the one joy that actually goes beyond the personal because in a democracy, when we actually vote for our representatives, it's important to know as much as possible and you know, we really learn about the rest of the world by traveling there. And as you know, very few, a uh, very small percentage of Americans have passports. And when you travel, especially in Europe, and you you mentioned this to Europeans, they're just astounded. You know, the country that has so much influence mm-hmm. in the world has very little experience
0: with the world. I really find that there's a lot of Americans that are really afraid of what's going on outside of our borders, but they are inclined to be the ones who have not traveled. They're the ones without the passports. Right. When we travel, we need a little bit of context to get the most out of the discovery. Let's go to emotional connection, because that was an a very interesting part of your book to me. The emotional connection is a big part of the travel experience.
3: Right, and this is the one that's not inevitable. You know, basically right. on every trip, you're going to have the movement, you're going to have anticipation, you're going to have novelty. But emotional connection is is actually relatively rare, that I go to a place and I feel really moved by the
0: place. What's an example?
3: Well, the first place where I felt this uh, as a traveler, not as somebody who lived somewhere, was in Portugal. It was my first assignment as the travel editor of the newspaper. And I'd been in Spain for two weeks, and I went to all the tourist cities. I went Madrid, Barcelona, Seville, And I just went around looking at sites. And then when I got to Portugal, I really felt I need to meet somebody. And I went to Coimbra, which is known as the Oxford of Portugal, a great university town. And I went to the English department and I accosted the first person I saw. She happened to be Dutch teaching there for the semester, but she knew a poet, a Portuguese poet in Lisbon and said, when I went back to Lisbon, I should look him up. I did. He immediately invited me to dinner. And after dinner, we went to a small club, kind of like a dive, where just men were sitting at these long tables singing fado, you know, that Mm. beautiful Mm -hmm. yearning music of, of Portugal. And at that moment, I thought, you know, now I'm living the life of a local. Even though I'm a tourist, I'm I'm experiencing something. There were no other tourists in this club. It was not one of those places that offer meals with mm-hmm. folkloric evenings. It was really something authentic. And that was a moment. And, and Casimiro, the poet, would translate the songs. And all of a sudden, I felt this emotional connection to Portugal. And it happened also throughout that trip. You know, the Portuguese, I thought, really... Kind of went out of their way to make me feel welcome. Mm -hmm. It was kind of where I developed my my theory that sometimes the less glamorous the destination,
0: the more rewarding the trip. Do you think some cultures are more emotional than others? Because I find Italy quite emotional, and I think Italy is one of the most popular destinations. I
3: know, but I say in the book, and I love Italy, you know, I've been a number of times, but I don't feel the emotional connection to Italy that I do to Portugal or Mm. Turkey. Or Vietnam. And I think it's partly because so many people are attached to to Italy, you know, that she's the most popular girl in school. Mm -hmm. And
0: it colors my my feelings toward it. Now, that's interesting because when I go to Poland, I feel that way. I feel like Poland is the unappreciated girl at the ball.
3: Yeah, well, I lived there, as you know, uh, for two and a half years, so I definitely feel a real
0: attachment. And my wife is Polish. I met her. Okay, (laughs) so you know what I'm talking about. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Thomas Swick. His book is called The Joys of Travel. And the finale in your book is a heightened appreciation of home. For me, the second happiest day of the year is the day I leave. And the happiest day is the day I come home. And it was interesting to know that you capped your book with this notion. Talk about that for a bit. Kipling said, you know, What can they know of England who
3: only England know? And it's it's a wonderful line because it's true. When we go abroad, we think we're learning about the world, and we're also learning a lot about our own country, even if we're not aware of it. Mm -hmm. You know, we see things that other countries do better than we do. We see things that we miss, and you know, I tell you, one of the things I really appreciate about the U.S. when I travel to most countries is this the multicultural, multi-ethnic makeup of, of the United mm-hmm. States. You know, you go to most countries and you walk down the streets. Poland's a perfect example. You walk around Warsaw, there's no Chinatown. You know, mm-hmm. there's no Italian neighborhood. There's mm-hmm.
0: no, you know, which mm-hmm. we're used to. We're so used to in the United States. Oh, yeah, We're exploring the joys of travel with Thomas Swick right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Michelle in Austin, Texas joins us on the listener line at 877-333-RICK. Hey, Michelle, do these travel joys reflect what you found in your travels?
4: Oh, my goodness, yes. Um, I have to say that Tom's point struck a chord with me because over the years um, that I have been traveling, over oh, 25-plus years, I have gradually kind of learned what's really important to me. I mean, not, you know, growing up as an American and thinking that just everybody sort of value the same things we do, and then going to different countries and just kind of having my eyes open and, and realizing that there are actually are better ways almost in, in many instances of looking at life and evaluating things that hadn't occurred to me. And so what I enjoy is, is learning from those experiences and bringing home those revelations and, and then incorporating them into my life once I come home. And I have found that really to be so rewarding over the years.
0: You know, that is a very good point. Thomas, Michelle's kind of actually giving an extra dimension to appreciating home, making home even better by splicing in things that you appreciated abroad and, and kind of making your life a, a cultural hybrid. I think we've seen that over the years. I, I'm pretty sure that
3: the uh, the craft beer movement, you know, the artisan chocolates, you know, all the new bakeries that we have in the States, they were, if not started, they were definitely widely supported by Americans who traveled abroad Mm. and, you Mm. know, tasted Belgian beer. Starbucks coffee. And (laughs) and French bread (laughs) and said, you know, this stuff is good and and brought those
0: ideas back and and started businesses here in the States. Michelle, what's an example of something you've incorporated into your lifestyle that you picked up in your travels?
4: (laughs) Oh, so many things, and of course, the first thing that comes to mind is is just, just different foods, different different combinations of foods that you that are just so unexpected. Like, my, my big idea would be to bring in a good French salad restaurant. <laughs> oh, yeah. Bring in some more salads into the American diet because I just could not get over the beautiful salads in the south of France.
0: And then when you're so oh. healthy, you can splice in a nice meal of just stinky exotic cheese and, and, uh, <laughs> and go the <laughs> other <too>. direction. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Michelle, thanks for your point. I think that's a, a, a very good observation.
4: Thank you so much.
0: Take care and happy travels. We've been talking with Thomas Swick. His book is The Joys of Travel. And, Thomas, this has been fun going through the seven joys of travel with you. Is there one overriding piece of advice that that you'd share that we could um, sort of cap this discussion with?
3: Yeah, I think it's trying to approximate in the short time you have in a place the life of a local. You know, tourists tend to live in their own world of hotels, restaurants, museums, and and if they can get away from that world and enter that of the locals, which is offices and apartments, and get invited somehow
0: home for a meal, then the trip takes on much more meaning. So let's talk about a couple of examples. You mentioned getting invited home for a meal, going to a soccer match going to a pub and sitting at the bar and talking with somebody? uh.
3: Well, one tip I, I always give people, those who still buy postcards, you know, in Europe they often try to sell you the stamps with the postcards and you think, well, yeah, that's very convenient. And I always tell people, no, go to the post office because it may be the one time in your trip that you actually experience the life of a local standing in line at the post office. And who knows, you might get talking to somebody
0: there in line and strike up a friendship. We've been talking with Thomas Swick, this book is The Joys of Travel. Thomas, thanks so much. Thank you, Rick. You'll find a link to the thomaswick.com website and a forum where you can post the emotional rewards you've discovered from your own travels. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com.
1: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Isaac kaplan woldner and Sarah McCormick at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We get promotional support from Sheila Gerzoff. Special thanks to WLRN Radio in Miami, KJZZ in Phoenix, and Wisconsin Public Radio in Madison for studio help this week. Rick narrates detailed walking tours to many of Europe's most popular attractions. You'll find a link to Rick's Audio Europe Travel app at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves teaches smart
4: European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.